Hey, Will, like I normally do, I just want to take a moment to tell our listeners to make sure they hit us up on social, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might see us. Make sure you're sending us something. Also, you can email us directly at AppalachiaMeetsWorld at gmail.com. If you get a moment, shoot us a line, give us some feedback. Yeah, and wherever you listen to the podcast, make sure you subscribe to Appalachia Meets World. It just helps our podcast, but it also helps you know when we're releasing a new episode. The brain is just another organ, right? So why we decide to treat it differently than any other organ. If your feet hurt, you go see a podiatrist. If you're having trouble with sadness or despair, then you go see a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a licensed clinical social worker. Somehow that doesn't translate to people. Appalachia Meets World, a podcast about place and perspective, but always Appalachian. And don't forget, Will, tonight's episode is powered by SOAR. Shaping our Appalachian region. If you're an entrepreneur out there, especially in eastern Kentucky, check them out. Appalachian Meets World, we're back. It's Will. And Neil. What up, bro? Hey, what's going on down there? Man, you know, just kicking it in the 606, like I always do. Lots of things going on. Beautiful time of year. It is. It's not quite fall yet. The leaves aren't changing. Big plans for Labor Day? When I think of Labor Day, I think of football. And I can't wait to just watch football all weekend. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed our predictions. Yeah, games today, games tomorrow, games all weekend. Oh, yeah. That's why I like it. Every day's football. I got a little Appalachian news for you today. Let's hear it. Uh, I guess a little bit of it, you know, we always seem to talk about the flood, rightfully so. But I saw that Berea College is donating more than a million dollars towards flood relief. They're donating it to the Foundation for Appalachian Kentucky to administer through their networks. But a portion of it will go to the school systems affected, 50000 per system. So I thought that was a pretty cool donation that Berea is stepping up and, and contributing towards Appalachia, towards eastern Kentucky. Also wanted to mention, did you see the legislation, the Kentucky legislation that passed for $212 million towards flood relief in eastern Kentucky? I did, yeah. The uh, the governor had a big announcement on that. Yeah, a lot of that, you know, is going toward infrastructure, going toward government buildings, going toward building back a lot of things. But one thing it's not going towards, housing. Housing is a huge issue right now. I think a portion of the $212 million is going to, towards temporary housing, maybe some trailers to get over there to temporarily house some people. But I read a number. There's like 17,000 displaced persons in eastern Kentucky living on hillsides, living in tents, children uh, living in tents with their parents, have nowhere to go. And Congressman Brandon Smith proposed a $50 million amendment that would go directly toward housing and Kentucky legislature turned it down. So $212 million is great. Uh, obviously, there'll be more to come, but they definitely need to start thinking about short-term and long-term housing. Yeah, I hate to diminish a $212 million, Will, but obviously it's going to take even more of an investment in, in uh, all of Eastern Kentucky to rebuild it properly. So, you know, it's going to be a long battle. And like we said in the beginning, we're, we're not going to let it die. So we're going to keep talking about it on here. Support where you can. We, we've posted 
many of some resources. We'll post some more. I know Apple Shop has an updated resource list. Soar has an updated list. We'll post those in the show notes. But one other piece of app news I just wanted to mention. There's a new film series. I want to mention it because I want to ask you if you've seen the film. Ohio University at the Athena Cinema in Athens, Ohio is putting on between October and March of next year. Every month, I think they're going to have an, an Appalachian film. So it's a new series that shows cinematic interpretations of Appalachia. Now, I just want to list off the, the films to see if you have seen them or to see if you even recognize them as being Appalachian. So the first film is actually in September. It's Coal Miner's Daughter. Have you seen that? Uh, yes, Will. Of course I have. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen that, though. You know, it's a story of Loretta Lynn, but I can't, I can't remember when I watched it. American classic. What about the Mothman prophecies? No, I have not. We have talked about it on here, but I have not seen it. <laughs> I have not either. Yeah, the Mothman, I think of as Appalachian, but the, that movie, I, I don't know. Obviously, it depicts a lot of culture in Appalachia, but I don't equate the two. Um, we are Marshall. Oh, yeah. Lo- love that one. It's a great movie. Do you think Appalachian when you see that movie? Yeah, for sure. There's a new mo- film that came out. This is shown in January. Holler. It's directed by Nicole Regal. I think it's her first time directing. It highlights the struggles of a young woman as she determines to make something for herself in Southern Ohio. I haven't seen that. That's really new. I don't even think it's out on streaming, but I know it came out in the theaters not too long ago. Yeah, I haven't seen that one either. I actually heard it was pretty good. I'd like to see it. What I know you've seen this one. This is in February. Deliverance. Yes. Yes. Also an American classic. I haven't seen it lately, though. I'll be honest. It's been a while. You squeal like a pig? Yeah. Every time. <laughs> I won't let my kids watch it. So. Yeah. 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 It's definitely, definitely uh, an adult cinematic masterpiece. Uh, a lot of stereotypes come from that, too. Yeah. Dark Waters. Yes. Excellent. You have seen that? I haven't seen it. Is it good? Yeah, really good. Yeah, it's kind of the the true depiction, right? True story. Unexplained deaths in West Virginia. Yep. Yeah, I guess that that definitely is an Appalachian movie. So those are the films. Like I said, it's October. Actually, it's September through March. Every film, there will be a scholar there to discuss. If you're ever if you're in and around Ohio University and want to check it out, it's the at the Athena Cinema. I just thought that was a cool series. That's it for Appalachian news. But I wanted to ask you, you know, it's Serena Williams kind of farewell toward the U.S. Open. Did you watch her opening round match? I did not, Will. I don't I don't find a lot of time to watch TV like yourself. I know you lay around on the couch and you're bonbon. <laughs> I don't have that time. Her opening round match, it came on late. I had it on while I was doing something else. But I happened to catch, you know, they pay, always pan for celebrities and, and the audience they pan once to martina navratilova so obviously you know who that is right legend oh, yeah. legendary oh, yeah. tennis player well she was holding her dog apparently like i i find that funny in and of itself that she had a little dog at the match so the announcers are like oh there's martina navratilova and they didn't even mention the person sitting right next to her and i'll give you a thousand guesses and i guarantee you won't guess who was sitting next to her Andre Agassi. No. Andy Roddick. <laughs> no. So, <laughs> no, but Bill Clinton was sitting by Dr. Root, which is funny. <laughs> funny also. I mean, they were they were having a time. They were kicking it. 
Bill Clinton and Dr. Ruth play tennis together. Oh, really? I didn't yes. know. Yes. <laughs> yes. They have a they have a tennis game. Oh, that is awesome. That's good yeah. to know. Well, yeah. right next to Martina Navratilova. Oh my gosh. It was so funny. I don't know about why people didn't make a bigger deal about it. The announcers didn't even acknowledge it was Mike Tyson. Oh wow. <laughs> They didn't say a word about it. Not a word. Mike Tyson and Martina. I don't actually think they were together, but I mean, it was just comical just to see them next to each other. Well, now this brings up a very interesting point. You wonder why she had the dog with her. <laughs> that's, that's a very good point, Neil. Oh, Tyson at a tennis match. I love it, man. I wish he would box again. Can, can he box again this weekend? I'd watch him every day. Mental health day. Well, we, we, he, he needs some, some mental health help. He, he has had mental health issues and it kind of alludes to what our show is all about today. Mental health in Appalachia. I wanted to ask you in regard to that, you know, we talked about the floods earlier. We talked about the floods on several episodes and we've always come back to this word resilient. So what do you think of when I say the word resilient? Just, I don't know, definition-wise. I mean, my initial thought is Appalachian. I guess just in general, resilient, it's like a never give up mentality. If you're a resilient person, you're, you're going to fight to the end, no matter what the situation. That's exactly right, man. If you look up the definition in Webster's, it's able to withstand or recover quickly from difficult situations. But it's also, I've heard, represented as adopting positively in the context of significant adversity. So I just want to talk about that for a second, you know, ask you about resilient. You know, we always talk about Appalachians being resilient, and we are. You know, we are resilient, but it's because we've had a lot of adversity. Without adversity, there is no resilience, right? Right. But also, especially when you're talking about mental health, it's not always the best thing to depict someone as resilient, or it may not always be a compliment. Meaning, if you're resilient, what's the first word you think of? Tough. Tough, strong. I know growing up, I always had the role models of these strong male Appalachians that never talked about their problems, never cried, never mentioned anything that bothered them. You know what I mean? I grew up that way. I grew up believing that's the way you were supposed to be. That's part of being Appalachian. That's just who we are. We don't talk a lot about our problems. We don't talk a lot about much much of anything. You know, I always grew up being the strong, silent type, or that's at least how people depicted me. I never said much. Definitely didn't complain about being hurt. Definitely didn't complain about or talk about any of my problems. I think a lot of people will be surprised to even know that I I have a podcast and talk on the podcast. <laughs> it's often hilarious when I run into somebody that went to high school with you, Will, and I tell them we have a podcast because they're like, so does Will listen to you talk? And I'm like, <laughs> actually, it's just the opposite. <laughs> you would be shocked. <laughs> but I think that's just, you know, the way we grew up, you know, being Appalachian, being resilient, not talking about your problems and and in the day that we're talking about mental health that's not always the healthiest thing you know i think this podcast may be a kind of a form of therapy for me (laughs) Uh, yeah maybe you know it's a way to talk about things that i may not otherwise talk about i definitely don't talk about 
my problems. You know, everybody's got problems. Everybody's got issues. It's how we deal with those, I guess, on a day to day. There's a lot of stereotypes. You know, mental health is definitely stigmatized. And I think that word resilient sometimes can be detrimental when you're talking about someone that has issues, but doesn't want to talk about them. You know what I mean? Absolutely. You, you couldn't be more accurate. Uh, it's hard for us Appalachians. I think we'll get into it on the episode, but you know, in regards to mental health, being from Appalachia, having that depiction as being resilient, being those strong Appalachians that don't complain about much, that always put on that positive face, you know, everyone has problems. And, and uh, I think this episode will talk about the stigmatization of mental health and that you know, if you have problems, if you're out there and you have issues, don't be scared to, to reach out for help. Just like going to the doctor, if something's hurting, you know, if you broke your arm, you definitely go to the doctor. If you're having other issues, you know, reach out. There's someone out there that can help. Very important. Something that's uh, been overlooked for a long time. So um, I'm excited to learn more about what's going on in uh, Appalachia as it pertains to mental health. And one place you could do that, I just wanted to mention SOAR on their website. They currently have mental health awareness tips and it's for coping with a disaster. So after the flooding, especially a lot of people have been traumatized. They have something from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, which we will put the link on our show notes. It just gives some tips on how to care for yourself and your loved ones in the wake of a natural disaster. There's a lot of resources of where they can reach out if they're having issues, if they need some counseling service like the Appalachian Regional Healthcare, Mountain Comprehensive Care Centers, Kentucky River Community Care, Cumberland River Behavioral Health, Mountain Comprehensive Health Corporation and Juniper Health. All those will be in the show notes and on the link. So even though we're proud of that word resilient as well, we should be. I think we also need to remember that for having issues, especially in the wake of a natural disaster, like the flooding, it's okay to ask for help. You know, it's okay to reach out if you feel like you need help, especially in regards to your mental health. Yes, all that information that you just gave, Will, I hope, uh, hope people will go back and listen to it. I didn't realize the resources that are out there for mental health. So uh, something that we all need to, to look into and tap into if we feel like uh, we need to pursue it. So I'm glad you mentioned those. And I'm looking forward to this episode. With Dr. Bossert. Let's just get into it. You want to get him on here? Yes, sir. Sounds good. episode tonight, we have Dr. Rob Bossert. He is the professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Neuroscience at the University of South Florida. He's an epidemiologist and he studies the treatment for mental health disorders and suicide prevention. Prior to USF, he was a professor and director of the Injury Control Research Center at West Virginia University, one of 10 such centers in the country. He got his PhD from Notre Dame and did a two-year postdoc fellowship with the Epidemic Intelligence Service Program at the CDC, which I have a few questions about later on. Yeah, um, he's published over 60 papers on suicide, and in 2019, he was recognized as a world expert in suicide prevention. The main reason why we really wanted to have him on the show tonight is to talk about his research. It's a three-year study that was funded by PCORI, or the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute, and it's called the Appalachian Mind Health Initiative. So, Dr. Bossert, we thank you for your time and appreciate you being here. 
Yeah, my pleasure. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a serious question. We ask everybody this. Like most Appalachians, we're big on tradition. And one of the traditions we have, we have appetizers at the holidays. Usually we have this ginormous spread of appetizers, bigger than the actual meal. So we wanted to ask you, do you have a favorite appetizer or just holiday dish? So holidays to me are turkey. You have to have turkey with holidays, right? So I'm not a ham guy. It's always turkey, but the appetizer that everybody waits for is deviled eggs. Oh, that's two in a row. It's such yeah, a great that's answer. That's, Neil, yeah. that's Neil's favorite. Yeah, yeah. You can't go wrong with a deviled egg. <laughs> uh, I usually have like 10 of them before we start eating. So. Yes. Yeah, we <laughs> would usually cook about a dozen, dozen and a half eggs and split them up. So you, you know, you've got 24 or 36 deviled eggs running around. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, great answer. Obviously, we're going to talk about the Appalachian Mind Health Initiative, but I have a few just general questions on mental health to begin with, especially in regards to Appalachia. But, you know, the region, we've been economically dramatized and stereotyped for, for generations, really, which only kind of exacerbates the social detriments of, of health in the region. We have a higher prevalence of things like uh, heart disease, cancer, stroke, infant mortality, diabetes. That's just to name a few. But also in regards to mental health, we have much higher rates with depression and suicide. So can you maybe just speak to the why Appalachia has higher rates in, in, in regards to mental health, or maybe it's just rural areas in general? Yeah, I wish I knew the why. Uh, <laughs> that, um, you know, I can give you the complicated answer. As you said, you know, I think it's multifactorial. You can start with the easy stuff, right? And the easy stuff is that there's just a shortage of mental health providers in the country. It's not just unique to rural areas, but it's more profound in rural areas. You know, hospitals have been shutting down, particularly in, in rural areas, brick and mortar buildings are, are shutting down. That increases the loss of providers, but there's just not enough mental health providers in general. So it's, a, it's particularly difficult to recruit providers to rural areas. And when you have states like West Virginia or states in Appalachia that are sort of characterized by rural areas, I think they they feel that effect a little bit more strongly than others. So there's the mental health shortage, uh, provider shortage. I, I think that's something you can talk about. Uh, certainly, everybody I think is in in the mental health services industry is trying to address that in one way or another. And the study we'll talk about later is you know a step in that direction. Uh, but then you have a, you you sort of alluded to it. You know the unique cultural factors that that may play along with it as well. Uh, rugged independence or a willing, uh, decreased willingness to seek help for mental health problems. Rural communities are, tend to be smaller, more intimate, and that's a gross oversimplification. One of the things I've been rural, doing rural research for a while now, and, and one of the things that I always hear when I present to people who are representatives of rural areas or other rural researchers is it's unfair to sort of say rural like this, this blanket statement. Right? Yeah. Because rural community in Appalachia is very different than a rural community in Montana, and communities have their own characteristics. But you know, there's that stigma around mental health services. There's a stigma stigma around mental health disorders in general. You couple that with a decrease in providers, and I think it's a complicated but interactive thing that leads to a greater problem in in some rural areas. You know, I'm glad you mentioned culture on top of access. You know, access is just one thing. Obviously, access is a big problem in Appalachia throughout the region, especially in rural areas. But, you know, like I mentioned, Appalachia is heavily stereotyped. It's almost demoralizing for people that live in, in the region. And, you know, our history of extraction of the land and the people, you know, it's caused uh, this trust. We, we don't have trust of outsiders that come in, you know, and on top of that, like you mentioned, we're incredibly independent, self-reliant culture. We don't seek help 
or even really talk about mental health uh, as far as that's concerned. So, you know, from a provider's perspective, the little that we do have throughout the region, do you feel that the providers need to need to fully understand or at least honor the struggle or acknowledge the struggle and the history to be able to even start a conversation in regards to mental health? Yeah, I think it's always true. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I can say about the providers that I've worked with in West Virginia, Kentucky, and the Appalachian region is, you know, they are committed to the community. I think they understand. They get it. There's a reason and a, a mission behind people who decide to go to the rural areas that others are, are having trouble recruiting to. I, I think they understand the, the sort of needs and the history of the communities. I, I think the maybe the, the more complicated problem is finding a way to overcome those. All the things that you talked about, right? The histories and legacies of not just marginalization, but trauma, as you so appropriately said, that's, that's happened for generations. And there's some really interesting discussion about intergenerational transmission of trauma and what that might mean. As you said, the, the culture that ends up happening or, or forming out of those communities. So I think the the clinical partners and I, you know, I'm not a clinician, I'm an epidemiologist. And so take it for what it's worth. I, I work with them, but I, I'm not one. But, you know, I, I think they understand the needs of their communities. I think they're deeply integrated in the communities. As a matter of fact, I think it's one of the things that makes working in Appalachia unique is that a lot of the people that are providers in those communities come from those communities and have yeah. long ties to those communities. And when you talk about community and, and healthcare systems, you're really talking about the same thing in a lot of these areas. In, in regards to destigmatization of mental health care, with a culture like we've discussed in Appalachia, is it harder, do you think, to destigmatize mental health? Is, is that an issue in Appalachia? Yeah. I think it's got its unique challenges. I mean, you mentioned one point uh, about trust and dislike of outsiders. And so it's something, uh, I think, about who the messenger is and what the message is, uh, you know, the culturally informed, culturally appropriate message. I'm a guy that grew up in Florida. And so, you know, I worked in Appalachia for a long time and still work in Appalachia, but ultimately I'm still an outsider. And I think a lot of the needs and the voice of the community around destigmatization and those communities have to come from the community themselves and, and language and with messages that really resonate with what happens to be a more close-knit, I think, tighter community. And if you think about the history of, as you so perfectly said, a lot of the Appalachian areas, it's a response to, I think, the conditions that have been imposed on a lot of these communities, not just with extraction of resources, but the land rights and the communities and the decimation of those communities that have gone along with it. Yeah. And I'm not sure you know, what the what the right answer is there, but I, I think it's certainly, you know, stigma is a complicated thing wherever you're at and mental health, stigma around mental health conditions in particular is a complicated thing. I think that's true of, of urban and rural communities. You, that, you know, my poor kids have had to listen to me my entire life talk about the fact that the brain is just another organ, right? So why we decide to treat it differently than any other organ. If your feet hurt, you go see a podiatrist. If you're having trouble with sadness or despair, then you go see a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a licensed clinical social worker. Somehow that doesn't translate for people. Yeah, I love that point. While we focus our podcast on trying to gas up Appalachia, we still talk about the issue. We've talked about the opioid epidemic and the stigmatization behind that. Some of the similar things you said in regards to mental health, you know, you made such a good point. It's just like going to a podiatrist. You know, we obviously wanted to get into your study, into your research. So 
can you just let our listeners know about the Appalachian Mental Health Initiative? Yeah. So it's a, as you said, it was funded by the Patient Centered Outcomes Research Institute or PCORI. Um, it's what we call a pragmatic clinical trial. So it's a little bit different than other research studies that are true or not pragmatic clinical trials. And what pragmatic means is that we're trying to understand how the research findings that come out of this can be translated to real world settings because we're hoping that what we do leads to a change in the way that we use therapy. Basically what we're using is an online version of cognitive behavioral therapy therapy, which is a evidence-based or lots of studies that show it work, a way of getting, uh, helping you think about depression a little bit differently of, of uh, those things that are associated with depression it can treat the depression. And so it's an online version of that where our hope is that by eliminating the need to go in and see a doctor or drive into the community. I mean, one thing we didn't talk about, transportation issues, right? In, in Appalachia. I'm living in Tampa now. It's really easy for me to find a bus or for me to yeah. get to. It's different if you're living in a community where the nearest mental health provider is 20 miles away and there's no bus to get you there. So ours is a is a trial testing an online version of therapy that you can do on your phone, you can do on your computer, you can do it in library if you want. One of the reasons we selected the, the one that we're using is it's been studied, it's shown to work. We just want to know who it works for and in what form will it work best for people. And by that, I mean, you know, we can give someone a supporter who helps guide them through the process or they can go off and do it on their own. But people have preferences and some people are perfectly fine doing it on their own. Some people could benefit from the aid of a supporter and we hope to better understand that. Yeah, I saw a recent Harris poll that said in the region, 21% had trouble accessing primary care physicians, yeah. but that over double that 50% had trouble with mental health access. Uh, the real focus of your study is not to see if it works. We kind of know that it works, but I think you just mentioned, but it's who it works for. Yeah, who it works for and what form works best for which person. If you take something like therapy and we think about, we tend to think about therapy as going in and seeing a mental health provider and sitting down and having a discussion. I guess we should step back. You know, I take it for granted that people understand what therapy is. I think just that word can scare people sometimes. Yeah. Particularly when, you know, one of the things that I've grown to understand is that Appalachia is a marginalized community for all the reasons that we talked about. There's a distrust of institutions. There's a distrust of researchers. There's a distrust of people who are coming to the region. And it, it's born out of a history of things being taken away or being misused. And so challenges that we've encountered is, is just an understanding. This is common of, of communities that have that sort of histories, you know, an understanding of what therapy is, what, what does it mean to go to therapy? And I think people can be a little bit intimidated by that. You know, we talk about stigma. I think people think, okay, if I'm going to therapy, people are going to think I'm crazy and nobody wants to be crazy, right? Nobody wants right. to be slapped with that label and, and stigmatized. But therapy is really just a way of helping you better understand your problems and work through your problems. And there are structured ways of doing that, that eventually help your brain adapt. And you can begin to do it on your own in almost an automatic way, which is what cognitive behavioral therapy is. So therapy is really a, a dialogue and a process and a series of activities that help someone get better. Our hope is that by having something that can be done in your home at your own pace without having to go into a doctor's office, if you're worried that people see you going in to see a therapist, do it at your desk or do it at your phone, do it at your own pace. You know, it's it's difficult to get a ride. Maybe people work and they can't take off and go to a therapist or go to a doctor every week. Okay, do it when you get home at eight o'clock at night after you're done watching your show. Take a few minutes and do your activity. You're right. You know, whether or not this works has already been shown. We're trying to figure out who it works best for and how we can help them get through it. Have you already signed up everyone for the study? No, still no, no. We're working. That? COVID's been tough. Yeah. 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 
COVID has hit us with a couple of things. One, you know, in, our study has been based in West Virginia for the most part. We're, we're now expanding into Kentucky. But for the first couple of years, it was only in West Virginia. And smaller rural communities, and you go through West Virginia, there's not a CVS in every corner. There's not a Walgreens in every corner. I've said I'm living in Tampa now, and two blocks from my house is a CVS. And then another couple blocks down the road is a Whole Foods. And there's a Trader Joe's across the street. And there's a CVS across the street, another pharmacy, right? What you have in a lot of the communities in West Virginia is a community pharmacy that's been there for many years or primary care. And so vaccine distribution and vaccine response to the COVID pandemic was on the shoulders of primary care who were our partners recruiting. And so for a while, everything had to be sort of shut down or shifted, in, at least in its prioritization, to manage the COVID pandemic. Uh, so we're slowly coming out of that and, and trying to reset our efforts. So you mentioned it's a three-year study. We're now bumping it out for additional years because we're so far behind in recruiting. But our goal is to recruit just over 3,300 patients who are new, newly starting treatment for depression. And then we can, we can assign them to different treatment groups and see who does well with what form. So if someone feels like they're eligible, they can check out your website? Yeah. Yeah. They can check out our website. We have a toll-free number. I'll provide it to you all. Love it if you if you distribute it. 1-866-984-AMHI. Yeah. 2644. I also coach middle school football and I, also, I often joke that I need a psychiatrist. So it might be something that all middle school football coaches might need to to look into for therapy in general i think everybody should be in it yeah i think it makes us all a better person yeah once again i you know i tell my kids all the time it's uh my my standard talking points are you know, the brain we all agree that the brain is the most complex organ in the body and yet we all think we're okay taking care of it on our own right we don't need any help taking care of that really complex organ. We're, we're just fine right. So football coaches, middle school kids, all of us. I did see a study that suggests mental health is the top diagnosis for most telehealth diagnoses. So this is a really important study that that you obviously that you're doing for the region for rural access in general, right? Yeah, we think so. But there are a couple of things it has to overcome. You know, I mentioned COVID. I think we're all a little bit burnt out now on video conferencing. Like we're on a Zoom meeting now and for a while, that's all we've done. And so I think, you know, people are sort of hungry for a little bit of face-to-face interaction if they can get it. It's also true that there have been a couple of studies have shown that people who are given online therapy options feel like they're getting sort of a second-class version of therapy. They want to go see somebody. Why is somebody giving me a program if I can go see someone? All the evidence suggested is as good, but we sort of have to overcome a lot of the challenges around acceptance of technology, technology burnout, and then acceptance of an online version of, of therapy itself. One thing I did see, I, I know you mentioned COVID, that yeah. fewer therapists are planning to continue virtual care for Medicaid patients. Yeah. Is insurance an issue for telehealth, uh, especially in regards to mental health? Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm the right person to answer that. I'm not an expert yeah. in insurance. Uh, <laughs> It's going I can down tell you, a different it, rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. But insurance is a is an issue for mental health in general. So I can answer it that way. A lot of insurance, basic insurance doesn't cover mental health services. If they do, the premiums are too high or the co-pays are too high. So I can tell you one of the things that has been an asset for the providers we work is, with is the ability to offer participation in our study as a route to therapy for some of the patients who otherwise wouldn't have that. That's uh, great. They're on Medicaid or some other insurance that doesn't have behavioral health benefits. Is there anything that you would like our listeners to know about the study? Obviously, we'll, we'll provide information in regards to how they can get on your website or how they can reach out if they feel like they would be eligible. But is there anything else you would like to talk about in regards to the study? 
Yeah, I mean, it's a, a, a sort of grand, uh, larger societal issue, I think. And it, it's, it's around what does research mean? I mean, I mentioned it earlier. I think a lot of people get a little bit concerned about I'm going to be in a research study. What does that mean? And I think there's a lot of misconceptions around participating in research. Really, all it means is that they go to therapy. And then every now and then they complete a survey to tell us how they're doing. So it's it's pretty benign. We you know we try to design it that way to not be intrusive. It's it's really focused on helping people get better and then learning from them as they get better. So one of the things I think that I'd like people to know is that by participating in research, by participating in our studies, they can help other people who are looking for mental health treatment and help us get the right form of treat, uh, treatment to people early on so they can get better as fast as they can. When this study goes beyond three to four years, how will you know when you're making a difference? Something you're thinking about now, or is it just kind of- Yeah, always. I mean, it's the frustrating thing about being a researcher. Right. We're so bogged down in the controlled aspects of of the work we're doing that often the benefit of the work we do is seem to be a little bit down the road and not really immediate. I can tell you that one, we take a lot of pride and a lot of joy in the feedback we get from our current participants. So the way our study works, we've got three treatment arms. So someone says, yeah, I'm willing to be in your study. We'll go through all the formal process of bringing them on as a research participant. Well, I have them fill out a survey. Then we'll use that information to make sure that some of the characteristics are even across the different groups. And we'll assign them to one of the three treatment arms. And one of the treatment arms are just treatment as usual. That means go see your doctor and do whatever your doctor tells you to do. We're not going to ask you to do anything special to be in the study. We just want you to go get treatment for your doctor. Then the other two groups are given access to the electronic online therapy. One of the groups just does it on their own. So they have 10 weeks to work their way through eight modules. And the other group has the same access to the online platform, the same expectations of movement through the the modules. We give them a supporter who goes back and provides them with feedback. Importantly, the supporter doesn't, isn't a therapist. They're not doing therapy on them. The online platform delivers the therapy. The supporter just tries to help them use the platform more efficiently and provides them with feedback about how they could use the platform in a way to benefit themselves more. So in those three treatment arms, Whatever treatment arm you're in, we follow people for a year uh, to see how they're doing at the end of the year. Great. I have a couple of West Virginia questions for you. If yeah, please. you're open to that. Oh, yeah. Did you ever burn any couches while you were in Morgantown? <laughs> no, I've only got a couch. I didn't want to burn it. Um, <laughs> Uh, I've seen seen a bit of couch burning, but I haven't actually burned a couch yet. Nice. So you say, obviously, you're a Floridian, but yeah. were you a convert or are you a fan of the pepperoni roll? Oh, you know, I can never embrace the pepperoni roll. So, <laughs> you know, if I was a minor, maybe all the carbohydrates and fat would get me through the day. But it just, yeah. as a public health professional, I never could embrace the pepperoni roll. I couldn't even bring my, I've, I've had one or two. Uh, you know, they're always at events at West Virginia University. Right. Pepperoni rolls, but I, I never could embrace it. Since you lived in Morgantown, is it Tudor World or Crackle Barrel? Oh, that's a great question. I think I'll go with Cracker Barrel just because I can get to it so many other places. But, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But no tutors in Florida. No, no, no. Uh, but Cracker Barrel is a relatively recent, uh, you know, presence in in Morgantown. It hasn't been there that long. Yeah. This is a, I guess, question even before West Virginia. But how much time did you spend at the linebacker lounge, <laughs> the one in uh, South Bend? Yeah. The- more than I should have. <laughs> I've been there once. Yeah, uh, yeah it was a good time. Um, more than I should have in, in graduate school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs>
Always avoided during home game uh, weekends because there were just way too many people. But the linebacker was always fun. I, I mentioned before I wanted to ask you about your two-year postdoc. Yeah. I know you did some pretty cool stuff, interesting stuff, while you were doing that polio eradication in Nigeria, in Mambia, in India. You went yeah. to uh, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans, suicide cluster in Maine, among other things. But one of the things I wanted to ask you about, the rainbow family of living life. Yeah. So Neil and I are from London, Kentucky. The Rainbow family actually came there one summer, and I still don't think they've left. I still think <laughs> there's a few of them that are hanging around. So I want to ask you about your time with the Rainbow family. How was that? It was fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> How yeah. long were you there? How long uh, were you with them? About three weeks. You know, the Rainbow family, I think, really got a bad rap. I was with the Epidemic Intelligence Service. I was with the Division of Violence Prevention at that time, which is a CDC group that obviously focused focuses on violence. And the state of West Virginia asked that we come in and do an investigation because they knew the Rainbow family was coming and there were concerns about violence and substance use. And then you get to the, so it's the gathering, right? So every year they have a gathering. You get to the gathering and you realize that one of the first rules is no nonviolence. So everybody's welcome as long as you adhere to nonviolence. That's that's the only rule. With Fight Club, you just don't talk about Fight Club. With the Rainbow Family, no violence. No, well, no violence, no hard drugs. Those really? Rainbow yep. Family? Rainbow Family. Oh, wow. Yep. That is a misconception. It is. Yeah. So they asked that you leave those in Babylon. You know, we we sort of walked around and realized that there was a lot of free coffee and free food. And occasionally someone would, would have a medical event. For the, but for the most part, there was an amazing system of volunteers that kept track of the healthcare needs of people attending the gathering. And there were some people that have been doing it for years, 30 years or more, who would show up in advance and they would set up a system of repeaters throughout the campsite so they could communicate with one another. And there is a family medicine practitioner who came every year who'd show up with antibiotics and medications. Because wow. there's no leader, right? That That's the whole point of Rainbow. Family. Yeah. There's, no there's this really weird tension between the Rainbows and the National Park Service where every year it's a conflict because no, yeah, nobody in the Rainbow family or nobody who attends the gathering will speak for anyone else. So the National Park Service wants them to sign a permit. Well, they only sign permits for themselves or refuse to sign permits for anybody else. And so it turns into this thing every year. I found that rather interesting when I found that out. Because seriously, I think there's some still hanging out in, in Baldrock in London. Here's what I'll tell you what I found interesting. You know, I think the, the year I went, there were 25,000 people or something like that who came. There was a really focused awareness on the impact of that many people in the forest. And so there were lots of people walking around with bags asking you to check your pockets for pocket lint and they would take your pocket lint from you so you wouldn't inadvertently leave something in the forest. And then people who would stick around and rehab the, the area to make sure that as much damage as they could undo was undone from having that many people chomp through the woods. So it was a it was a very interesting experience. Yeah. I guess you did some work with monkeypox and this was a, this was a while back. So what do you yeah. think about the resurgence of, of monkeypox lately? Um, so yeah, it was 2004 monkeypox. There was an outbreak in the Midwest and I was part of the second wave team. So we drove around trying to find people who'd been infected with monkeypox. We could draw their blood so we could see what the antibody response was. At that time it was it was being transmitted by prairie dogs. Uh, for a while you could get a prairie dog as a pet and they were sort of the 
they were become fashionable for a while. <laughs> uh, but you know, the exotic pet trade is relatively unregulated. It turns out that the, the bunch of them had become infected with monkeypox, and then they would bite their owners, and then so the prairie dog will get it from the monkey. No, now there's there was a long train of transmission. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> it sounds like an episode of Tiger King. <laughs> yeah. It turns out that the the chief culprit was rats passing along to prairie dogs in cages on. Yeah, it was a whole complicated thing. Oh, uh, then people had these prairie dogs as pets and they would let the pets, you know, the prairie dogs sleep with them in bed and they would get bitten every now and then and would transmit it that way. You mentioned that I did work in polio and, and polio is back in the United States again. And, you know, it's picked up in the in the sewer water of New York City. And what do I think of the current state of monkeypox? It, you know, I never, I know everybody's burned out a little bit from the COVID uh, pandemic, but, you know, we've got these pockets of low vaccine rates in, in areas and uh, hesitancy to use vaccines and it's just contributing to the spread. I think we've forgotten. I think one of the great benefits of having had that position was the opportunity to travel to places like Nigeria, Namibia, and India, where you can see the impact of people who've had polio, particularly in low-resource countries. And you'll We don't it. even think about that anymore, no. right? Yeah. And we don't watch the films from the 1950s to see people on iron lungs. And if you haven't you know, had the experience of being in a developing country and seeing some of an adult push themselves on a skateboard because their legs are useless because they, they contracted polio, uh, we sort of forget what the long-term effects of this stuff are. So am I necessarily surprised about monkeypox? No. There have been people raising warning signs about this particular virus having shifted with easier human-to-human transmission for a little while now. Well, needless to say, that was a very interesting two years. It was busy. I think the first year I lived in hotel rooms for seven months and then the second year was nine. Going to places like Nigeria, I'm a huge fan of Namibia. Absolutely beautiful. How does it compare to the hills of West Virginia? You know, shockingly similar. Yeah, shockingly similar. If you ever get the chance to go, I highly recommend it. It was a colony of South Africa until it broke away with independence. And so you have plains and the Kalahari Desert and... Uh, it's it's absolutely beautiful. The Skeleton Coast with some of the most beautiful beaches you'll ever see. So in that way, there's you no know, low population density. The entire country is about 2 million people. Kind of like West Virginia that way. Not very dense. Things are yeah. spread out. Lots of hills, lots of green land. Very cool. I'll have to put that on my bucket list. I would do it. Yeah. We ask all of our guests this question, and it's always interesting to hear what everybody's got to, to say. But I just want to know what the first thing that comes in your mind or the first thing that rolls off your tongue, uh, what do you think about when you when you hear the word Appalachia? Resources. Yeah. I don't yeah. think we've heard that before, Will. No, it's, it's an interesting answer. What makes you, you say that? You know, it's they're just abundant. And I get I guess I have a lot of West Virginia, Kentucky, you know, sections of Virginia in my mind. But you know, if people have not had an opportunity to drive through those those areas and, and, and visit them, they should. You know, beautiful green lands and, and water and wind resources and just absolutely stunning uh, in a way that you know I I live in a concrete jungle, right? Everything in Tampa is paved over and developed and everything has been as developed as it can be. So you have to tear down things to build something new. And you uh, you go to West Virginia in particular, and it's absolutely stunning with the amount of resources that are available. A beautiful state. It's almost as beautiful as Kentucky. Yeah. 
Yeah, almost. I spent more time in West Virginia, but yeah, you have to give Kentucky credit too. Yes. One other question that we ask all our guests, and you already mentioned you're a Floridian, but we ground our podcast on place and perspective. So place is really important to us. It's really important to Appalachians in general, but just where do you call home? What makes it home for you? Yeah. So Florida's home, but it always has been. I think when you're raised somewhere, the sights, the smells, the plant life, the food, those are the things that make it home. And so Florida's always been sort of my home. Tampa's home now. I'm a beach guy, so I can feel my heart rate go down when I step a foot on a beach or I uh, can get into the ocean. Certainly a water guy. You know, I don't believe that lakes are actually water. I think (laughs) it's... There's not something in there that could potentially eat you. It's not really water. That's blasphemy in Appalachia. I know, I know, but I'm I'm a coastal guy. I'm pretty sure there's some stuff down in Laurel Lake that could eat you if you get in. Before I moved for grad school to South Bend, Indiana, I never lived more than five miles from the beach. So it was always just right there on the coast. And and that was such a tremendous part of my childhood. My upbringing was going to the beach. But Appalachia is sort of my adopted home. I love the region. And so my PhD is in sociology. I'm always a fan of the underdog. It's why I love so much being in India and other developing countries. It's a wonderful region, wonderful state. It's one I wish that we could get a better understanding of. So I really appreciate the work you guys are doing to shed light on some of the misconceptions about the region. It was one of the things that was frustrating to me when I, I, I was at WVU twice. And the first time I left to go to West Virginia University, people said to me, you're moving to West Virginia? <laughs> Yeah. And I said, yeah, I'm moving to West Virginia. And uh, I've always thoroughly loved West Virginia and love Morgantown, love the region, love the Pennsylvania, southern, southwestern Pennsylvania, Kentucky, the Virginia area, Ohio Valley. Um, you know, some of the greatest people with the greatest community spirit that I've ever met in my life. Yeah. If we can just get people to come here just to see it firsthand, you know, part of this podcast, just let people know how great it is. Well, Dr. Bossert, we want to thank you very much for your time. We, you know, we appreciate all that you're doing, all that you do, especially in regards to the Appalachian Mental Health Initiative. But I also wanted to mention, we'll put the website in our show notes. We'll put the phone number in our show notes. And maybe I can mention the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline or phone number. Yeah, please. 1-800-273-TALK. And talk is 8255. And also there's a chat. If you don't have a phone, suicidepreventionlifeline.com org backslash chat. And there's a texting service. So if people are reluctant to talk to someone, they can text. Very cool. You know, we appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. It was great talking to you. Absolutely. Thanks a lot. Uh, Will, Dr. Bosser did a great job. Great learning from him about mental health and the opportunities that are out there research going on in Appalachia. I enjoyed talking to you tonight. Yeah, the Appalachian Mind Health Initiative. I think it's an important study to understand telehealth and telehealth in regards to mental health. All you know, all that Dr. Bossert was talking about in regards to what he's doing with the study, you know, extending it for another year. If you're eligible and interested in participating in the study, 1-866-984-2644, the Appalachian Mind Health Initiative. They do compensate the participants. You know, us Appalachians, we're going to talk about mental health. Somebody's got to pay us to do it. So (laughs) that resilient culture, resilient, strong culture. We definitely have to be compensated to open up. (laughs) Absolutely. For sure. At least we know who we are, though, you know? Yeah. 
but it's you know interesting study and like like he said it's not just about whether telehealth in regards to mental health diagnosis is not not just if it works i think we know telehealth works it's more important of who it works for and that's what this study will determine in regards to his outcome yeah will so uh do you have an at biz of the week for me today i do neil now that you mention it, I want to mention a Kentucky-based business in Crab Orchard, Lincoln County, Kentucky. It's an Appalachian-based business. It's called Sweetgrass. They make granola. Oh, so nice. it's Sweetgrass Southern Granola. To be honest with you, I'm not so sure it's in grocery stores, but you can check it out on their website. It's sweetgrassgranola.com. They have several uh, different flavors. It's non-GMO, nut-free, wheat-free, no refined sugars. They make it with sorghum cane syrup. They have everything from Appalachian sea salt to hemp seeds. They have flavors like Kentucky Harvest, Wild Pecan Cocoa, Cherry Home Companion, and Cinnamon Cane. I think I'd like to try that Kentucky Harvest. Where can you get that, Will? You can get it online at sweetgrassgranola.com. So if you're a granola fan, if you're a cereal fan, if you eat yogurt and want to throw some on top, check them out. It's a locally based, homegrown Appalachian business. Definitely going to check that out for sure. And uh, again, thanks to Dr. Bossert. And I hope that if we help one person from this episode tonight, uh, it'll be worth it. So I hope you guys will, will look into all the information that was shared here today. Yeah, definitely. And we will post everything that we talked about in the show notes. And again, you know, Appalachians, we're a strong, resilient region, strong, resilient people and been known for that because there's that we put up with a lot of adversity. We've been very stereotyped, very uh, extracted economy in regards to our resources. And a lot of that has led to these adverse conditions that we've had to become resilient over time. But just because we have that definition of resiliency doesn't mean that we don't have issues and doesn't mean that we can't reach out for help. So, you know, when you're thinking about being this strong Appalachian, remember, you're not being soft if you have issues, if you're reaching out. You know, there are people out there that can help you through some of this adversity. There are people out there and resources out there. And one of them that we mentioned in the show, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, I just want to mention that again, 1-800-273-TALK. That's 8255. Just want to wrap this episode with that, you know, last thought, I guess, in regards to resiliency, in regards to mental health and the importance of taking care of yourself, especially in adversity or in the wake of natural disasters, as we mentioned in the beginning. Yes, sir. Thanks a lot, Will. All right. I guess we can end it like we usually do. Till next time, Neil. Peace. I'm up in the mountains again. I'm getting lighter. The air's getting now I'm facing down with a grin I've been in the city too long Sidewalks and buildings and singing sad songs Now I'm back up where I belong in the mountains